Well, if you've got a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open it to uh, Acts chapter 1. We're continuing our study of the book of Acts. Uh, it is uh, October the 1st, already hard to believe that, just a beautiful day outside. Um, we all know that September the 1st, or September, really marks the beginning of a new season. Uh, summer holidays come to an end, kids go back to school, we all get back into our regular routines, our regular rhythms of life and all of that. And there's usually a little bit of dread that comes with that and a little bit of hope that comes with that, right? We're anticipating this could be a great new season. It's, there's something new that is happening. Uh, now, I think we all know that the season that really counts is uh, the football season. And uh, that season also begins in September. And every September, uh, the beginning of every September, every team in the NFL has a hope that this might be their year. And this played out in a really interesting way for one team in particular this year. That team was the New York Jets. Now, the New York Jets have not made the playoffs since 2010, so it's already been a long time. They have not won the Super Bowl since 1969, so even before I was alive, but just barely. Uh, but they had reason for hope entering this year. They were kind of a young team on the rise last year. They had a new head coach, a solid defense, a, a pair of good young receivers, a running back that had lots of potential. And then in the offseason, they, they acquired their long sought after quarterback, Aaron Rodgers. Four-time MVP, Aaron Rodgers. And in the minds of many people, this made the New York Jets instant Super Bowl contenders, or at least it filled lots of people with a lot of hope and optimism that this might be the year for the New York Jets. They played their first game of the season at home on a Monday night in New York on September the 11th. And Aaron Rodgers made a dramatic entrance. He ran out of the tunnel carrying the American flag. He ran through the gauntlet of players that lined the middle of the field. The energy in the stadium was electric. People who were there said they had goosebumps. And on the fourth snap of the game, Aaron Rodgers tore his Achilles tendon. His season was over for all intents and purposes. The Jets' season was over like they're playing tonight on Sunday Night Football. Nobody cares except for the fact that Taylor Swift might be there. <laughs> but, but, but all it took was one injury to one player and the hopes of millions of fans were dashed. That's how delicate a thing that is. We actually meet the polar opposite of that situation in Acts chapter 1 with regard to the early church. So just think about where we are in Acts chapter 1. Jesus has now ascended into heaven. He's left his disciples behind. He's given them a mission, to, to a worldwide mission, right, to go out and be his witnesses in, in all the world. But remember, there's actually only 11 disciples left because one of them defected, betrayed Jesus, and then committed suicide. Could anything have been more fragile or tenuous? I mean, wouldn't it have seemed more likely that the entire Jesus movement would have just fizzled out within days of his departure? 
But actually, I would tell you this morning that nothing has ever been more certain than the success of this mission. Not a football team season, not a business venture, not a military campaign, nothing. We ought to remember that Jesus said, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, lots of people have pointed out that gates are not offensive structures, but defensive structures, right? You close the gates of a city to defend the city. And as Christians, we ought not to see ourselves in retreat mode, but actually as pressing against the very gates of hell in our proclamation of the good news of the gospel. So I just want to say to you, if you've ever felt discouraged or uncertain about the state of the church or the future of the church, reading Acts chapter 1 should put those fears to rest. The mission is in good hands. So I'm going to read to you from Acts chapter 1. I'm going to start at verse 12 and then go right to the end of the chapter. Here's what it says to us. Then they returned to Jerusalem. From the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. That's the eleven who were remaining. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of those men must, be, must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and, Matt, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Well, this is an interesting passage for lots of reasons. I mean, when we read it, we might actually wonder, well, what is it doing here in The first place, right? So the beginning of Acts chapter 1 tells us about Jesus ascending into heaven. Acts chapter 2 tells us about the Holy Spirit descending on the church. And in the middle of that, we have the passage that I read for you. 
And this passage is largely taken up with selecting a replacement for Judas. And his replacement turns out to be a man named Matthias, a man we never read about again in the New Testament. So what are we supposed to do with this passage? Well, I want to cover it for you under four headings. The promises of God, the word of God, the judgment of God, and the providence of God. So let's begin with the promises of God. And the thing to note here is that the promises of God shouldn't stop us from praying. So the passage begins by, begins by saying this in verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Now, when it labels it a Sabbath day journey, that's because there were restrictions on just how far you could travel on a Sabbath day. That distance was about one kilometer of walking distance. Um, and then it says when they, when they had entered up, they went to the upper room and it lists the 11 disciples who were there. Uh, Luke's mention of Jerusalem is a reminder to us of what Jesus had said in verse 4 of this chapter. And there it says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And this passage is a description of them doing, of their obedience to what Jesus told them to do. Wait for the promise to come. It's verse 14 that grabs my attention. Verse 14 says this, And when they, or, or it says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now, maybe when you read that, it doesn't strike you as being all that amazing. I mean, it's a description of prayer taking place. We could just make an observation about the fact that they were united in prayer and they were persistent in their prayer. That's something we see throughout the book of Acts. Right? Christians are praying people. The church is a praying church. But, but that's not the thing that grabbed my attention. I was struck by something I hadn't really thought of until I read a comment in John Stott's commentary where he said this. He said, We learn, therefore, that God's promises do not render prayer superfluous. On the contrary, it is only his promises which give us the warrant to pray and the confidence that he will hear and answer. See, the disciples were given a promise, right? They're given this promise. Look, wait in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is going to come. And what do they do with that promise? Well, they go and they get together and they pray, right? Waiting for the Spirit in anticipation of the fulfillment of that promise. Now, there are lots of things that we don't understand about prayer, the disciples had already been promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why would they need to pray about that? But I actually think asking that question can lead us to a profound insight about prayer. See, lots of us, when we think about prayer, what we think about is we think about presenting our wish lists to God, right? God, would you do this? And would you do this? And, and all of that. And, and we are supposed to pray about all things. I mean, we're told in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving in our hearts, present, we're to present our requests before God. But presenting requests is really only part of prayer. And what you find as you read through the prayers that are recorded for us in the Bible is that so many of those prayers can be summarized as simply praying God's promises back to him. Saints throughout the ages have done this. 
And one of the benefits of doing this is that we begin to align our wills with His. So here the disciples are praying, waiting for the Spirit to come. It's no wonder they had this passion kindled in their prayers. So what does it look like for us to pray the promises of God? Well, I mean, let's say you are overwhelmed. You're, you're feeling overwhelmed. I mean, you, you kind of, you know, you're just weary from all that you've been doing. You're weary as you even think about everything that lies before you. Well, how about this reminder from the prophet Isaiah, where he says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Well, what would it look like to pray those promises? I think it would sound something like this. Oh Lord, you are the everlasting God. You never grow weary or tired, but I do and I am. You promise to give power to the faint, that's me. To give strength to the weary, that's me. You promise that if I wait for you, you will renew my strength. I don't even really know how to to wait, but I'm going to wait because I've learned my own strength is not enough. That's what praying the promises of God looks like. We take the promise of God and we pray it. Or maybe your trouble lies in a different direction. Listen to to these words from the book of Hebrews. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So how do we pray that? Well, we begin by acknowledging our tendency to trust in money, which is deceptive and has a habit of disappearing. So, and so we pray, Lord, you know how tempted I am to trust in money and possessions for my security. But you've promised me something that can never be taken away from me, your very presence. Lord, that means I can live in this world not fearful about what man might do to me. You are my helper. You're my ever-present help in times of trouble. Thank you for this promise. Look, I have prayed that prayer many times. So the disciples had the promise of Jesus. Wait for the Spirit to come. And that's exactly what they did. They waited and they prayed in anticipation of the Lord fulfilling that promise. Having the promises of God shouldn't diminish our prayers. It should ignite them and fuel them. So the promises of God shouldn't stop us from praying. A second thing we see here is that the word of God will be fulfilled. Uh, Verse 15 tells us that if you numbered all of the people who were present, all the disciples of Jesus, the family of Jesus, the followers of Jesus who were there, you had a group of about 120 people. And then Peter stands up and addresses the group. And here's what he says in verse 16. Brothers, The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. 
I think it's instructive that the very first thing Peter says to this group is the scripture had to be fulfilled. Now, what he's referring to is is the defection of Jesus, his betrayal, and then also his replacement. And this was important to understand. I mean, just imagine yourself in the disciples' place, right? I mean, you're sort of assessing everything, how it's gone, and, and, you know, wondering about the future and all of that. I mean, people could have had questions, you know, about Jesus' own judgment of character. I mean, he invited Judas into the circle, and yet Judas betrayed him. He must not have been a very good judge of character, something along those lines. We are supposed to know this is part of God's plan. Actually, it's the fulfillment of Scripture, something David said hundreds of years before. Now, we actually saw this when we were studying the Gospel of John together. Right after Jesus washes his disciples' feet, we read this. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. So Jesus knew the heart of Judas. He knew he was going to betray him. Later in that same passage, Jesus goes on to say, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. It's actually interesting. Every time you read about the betrayal of Judas, there is a reminder that Jesus knew about this all along and that Judas's actions were actually, even though he acted of his own initiative, he was acting in fulfillment of what God had already said. But the scripture that was fulfilled wasn't just about Judas's betrayal, but also his replacement. Peter says the Holy Spirit spoke about Judas by the mouth of David And then he quotes from two psalms. The beginning of verse 20 says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. That's a quote from Psalm 69, verse 25, where where we read, May their camp be a desolation, let no one dwell in their tents. Now, if you were just reading through Psalm 69 on your own, maybe devotionally, or just reading through it, you might not read that verse and instantly make a connection with Judas. So is Peter just kind of grabbing a random line out of one of the Psalms and making it fit his argument? Well, you have to look at Psalm 69 in its entirety. Psalm 69 is known or referred to as a messianic psalm. And the reason is, it's because Psalm 69 is quoted five times in the New Testament. That psalm, if you were to summarize it, it describes an innocent sufferer who is hated by his enemies It describes this person as one who is consumed with zeal for God's house. That's Jesus. It says in there that the reproaches of those who reproached God fell on this individual. And then towards the end of the psalm, there's this prayer that the wicked will be judged. Now, Peter individualizes that promise or that part of the psalm and applies it to Judas. The second quotation is similar. It says, let another take his office. That one is taken from Psalm 109, verse 8, where it says, may his days be few, may another take his office. 
And Psalm 109, if you read the whole thing, it's about wicked and deceitful men who without justification slander, hate, and attack the writer. And then verse 8 singles out the ringleader who needs to be replaced. And, the psalmist is, or, and, and here Peter is saying that applies to Judas. That's a reference to Judas. So all of this, according to Peter, is the warrant for selecting another individual to replace Judas. I'm going to say something about why it was important to replace him in a few minutes. But for now, the thing we need to, to know or be reminded of is that God's word will be fulfilled. Even the smallest details of what God tells us will come to pass. Now, that was what was supposed to be a source of comfort to the disciples. You know, when they saw this, they were supposed to remember, well, Jesus said this. The psalmist predicted this. And it should actually be a source of comfort to us as well. You know, sometimes we look out at the world and we wonder, you know, what on earth is happening? Or has God lost all control? But none of the things that surprise us surprise God, and none of the things that surprise us really should surprise us. Listen to what Paul wrote to Timothy. He said this, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Should any of those things surprise us when we see them on display in our world, people behaving like that, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, any of that, look, all of that is a fulfillment of what God's word tells us the world will be like. This actually leads us to a third observation, which is that God's judgment will be executed. Listen again to verses 17 to 19. Of Judas, it says, or Peter said, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. Honestly, we might be tempted to skip over uh, this part of the story. We don't hear much about God's judgment today. Luke actually goes into the gory details of what happened to Judas here. His bowels gushed out. It's pretty descriptive, right? I'm not sure what they do with this in the illustrated Bibles. Um, Although actually I do know because I searched through a bunch of them this week. Looking for the story. I couldn't couldn't find any good visuals. Um, Thinking about God's judgment is not pleasant. But it's not something we should, you know, consign to the Old Testament as if God has moved on from all of that. Now, when we read the Old Testament, I mean, we encounter stories that speak of God's direct judgment on individuals. So 1 Kings 21, we read, and of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Or we read this description 
from 2 Samuel 20, where it says, But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Now, maybe when we read that, it's a little bit shocking or mildly shocking to modern sensibilities, right, that God would carry out judgment like this, such a physical way. But sometimes, you know, we, 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 can, we can kind of expect that in the Old Testament. But, you know, we come to the New Testament and we think, well, the New Testament, it's all, you know, peace, love, dove, right? I don't know, this, this judgment on Judas um, seems to go against that. E- even if we were just to limit ourselves to the book of Acts, we actually find several examples of God's direct judgment on individuals. You think of the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. It's the account of the couple who lied about the proceeds of a property that they sold and then acted deceptively before the apostles. Right, Peter rebuked Ananias for his deception. And then we read, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And then as you keep reading, three hours later, his wife comes in before the apostles. She tries to perpetuate that same deception. She doesn't know what's happened to her husband. And then it says, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. And they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Acts chapter 12 tells us about the fate of King Herod and does so in descriptive terms. It says, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes took his seat upon the throne, delivered an oration to them, and the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, I know all of these are examples of sort of that lightning bolt from the sky kind of judgment. And we should remember, God does do that at times. Now, I'm not just trying to string together all of the judgment passages and neglect the ones that highlight forgiveness and transformation and grace and all of that. I just think our tendency is to overlook or neglect those passages that remind us that God does judge evil. He does judge wickedness. He did judge Judas. And we need to know that God's judgment didn't only affect the person who was under judgment, but actually had an effect on the people who witnessed it as well. So verse 19 says that it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, the field of blood. So every time you passed by, you were reminded this is what happened. Same thing in Acts 5, right? What does it say? Great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard about it. And the reason I point this out is because God does and will execute his judgment, not always instantaneously, but it's always carried out. And my caution to you this morning is not to make light of the Lord's discipline. We ought to remember the repeated warnings throughout the Bible. We're told 
It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of, of the living God. That is in the sense of you're going to be, if you're going to be judged. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And when we do that, we ought to remember that one of Paul's instructions about doing that is that if we participate in an unworthy manner, we are eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. So we ought to be careful. I don't say that to scare you away from the table but to remind you not to take the judgment of God lightly. Final thing we, we ought to see from this passage is that God's providence is over all. Now, providence is one of those words you, we, we hear from time to time, and maybe you have a vague understanding of what it means, but what do we actually mean when we speak about God's providence? Uh, one of the books that I read over my sabbatical was a book entitled simply Providence. The book was written by John Piper. It is about 800 pages long. I read it devotionally, just kind of a chapter a day. And uh, in that book, he does a great job of just bringing the reminder that God is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over nations. He's sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over everything that we can think of. But here's his definition of Providence. He said, the providence of God is his purposeful sovereignty by which he will be completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. God's providence carries his plans into action, guides all things toward his ultimate goal, and leads to the final consummation. The providence of God is his purposeful sovereignty by which he will be completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. That's what providence is. And if we took that definition, we said, we used that expression providence or that word providence, we could put that heading over everything we see in this chapter, right? God was provident over Judas's betrayal. But I want to show you God's providence in the replacement of Judas by Matthias. God's provident over that. He was. Now, the first question we might have is, well, why did Judas need to be replaced? I mean, why not just have 11 apostles? You know, there's going to be this great outpouring of the Spirit. There's going to be thousands of people that come to faith. Lots of people are converted, become followers of Jesus. Couldn't you just accomplish that with 11 apostles? Well, the answer, to, the answer to that was pointed to back in verse 17. In verse 17, speaking of Judas, it said, For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So what was Judas's share in the ministry? Was it like, you know, everyone sort of shared an equal workload? Was it his cut of the profits? I think the answer is found in something Jesus said earlier. If you look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, it says there, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, saying to the twelve, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So you can't just have eleven thrones that are occupied. Now I think this actually points to the reconstitution of Israel in the church. That's something we could debate another time. Actually, this passage has a really interesting history because it's actually been a, a sort of a flashpoint throughout church history. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church, along with the Mormons, would say that it teaches the idea of apostolic succession. That is, 
that the bishops today represent a direct, uninterrupted line of continuity from the first apostles until now. I mean, why else would Judas have to be replaced? The passage doesn't teach that. Uh, later in the book of Acts, we're going to learn that James, who was also one of the 12 apostles, was killed. He's not replaced. And he didn't need to be replaced because he died. Judas needed to be replaced because he defected. Lost his share in the ministry. Now also when you read the criteria for an apostle from this passage, it demonstrates that no one qualifies for this today, right? Had to be someone who was there from the beginning, Jesus' baptism, to a witness of his resurrection. It seems silly to have to say that. But you have all sorts of people claiming to be apostles today. There are no apostles like this today, despite what you might hear from groups connected to the New Apostolic Reformation who declare themselves to be apostles. They don't meet the criteria. So back to the question of providence. We we can see why Judas had to be replaced, but now we come to the issue of how Judas was replaced. Notice what they do. Verses 21 and 22, Peter gives the criteria, right? One of the men who, who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So there's the criteria, right? They do their due diligence. They go through this list of, you know, 120 people, and they say, well, who fits the criteria? It's down to these two guys. So how do they decide? What should they do? Well, the next thing they do in verses 24 and 25 is they pray. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. Right? They knew they were chosen by Jesus. They want to make sure this replacement is chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So far, so good. Right? Criteria, checklist, you pray. And then they do something very interesting in verse 26. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. If you don't know, the lot was a small stone. It was often used in Old Testament times for the decision-making process. It was used in the division of of the land of Canaan, uh, according to the tribes, to determine which tribe got which portion. It was used in the selection of Saul as the king of Israel. But I mean, as we think about it today, casting, the casting of lots has to seem like the most random thing you could do to make a decision. I mean, the modern day equivalent would be flipping a coin, right? Heads Carolina, tails California, Anyone? Or like rolling dice, right? You know, if the number seven comes up, I mean, that's the girl I'm marrying, that kind of thing. Is that, is that how random this is? Is that how the apostles made their decision? Well, I would just say, I, I don't think we should see the practice of casting lots as normative for today. There's lots we're going to read in the book of Acts that's, that's probably not normative for us today. What I think we ought to take away from this is that the apostles had trust in the providence of God. 
right? They list their criteria. Must be one who accompanied Jesus from the beginning. Must be a witness to his resurrection. They pray about it. But in the end, all they can do is trust in the providence of God. The book of Proverbs tells us the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean we can't make mistakes. It does mean there are no accidents. There's no good luck or bad luck. Everything that happens, happens under the providence of God. You know, sometimes we come to a place of, you know, we got to make a decision and there's lots of weight that comes with it and we, we pour over that thing and we just wonder, should I do this? Should I do that? What if I make the wrong choice? Well, I think, you know, we, we do our due diligence, right? We, we work through the process and we think about how this decision impacts that thing or, or this thing and we pray about it and then we entrust it to the providence of God. That everything that happens will happen under his providence. The world is not going to fall apart if you make a mistake. And the bigger picture is this idea that the providence of God is his purposeful sovereignty by which he will be completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. God's providence carries his plans into action, guides all things towards his ultimate goal, and leads to the final consummation. This is why the mission of the church was successful, because God was providently guiding everything that happened, and he still is today. He's sovereign over your life and my life, and he's sovereign over the church. So let's pray in that confidence. Father, we thank you today for your promises to us. And we know that there are some of those promises that are really simple. I mean, they're profound, but they're simple. They, you promise you will never leave us nor forsake us. And that's such a great promise to behold and to just revel in. You've promised us your spirit. You've given us your spirit, and, and, and we can enjoy that, enjoy closeness with you as a result. And you're in control of all things. And so it's not up to us and what we can do and where we might misstep. We know that you're in control of all things. And so as we think of the future, we, we have confidence because it's in your hands. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.